Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA we can go through the motions, right, and facilitate on a platform virtually with remote learners. But I always try to challenge and push people to be more excellent, right? And how can we do that? I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 334, which features a conversation with Diana Howells. Diana is an award-winning speaker, global virtual facilitator, and master trainer who brings 25 years of experience in the talent development field. Diana is CEO and co-owner of Howells Associates and author of Next Level Virtual Training, Advance Your Facilitation. Diana and Salisa focus on virtual training and talk about the capability model for virtual facilitators that Diana developed. They also get into Diana's approach to combining or blending live online and asynchronous online components, why she prefers the term live mixed to hybrid, the importance of co-facilitation in live mixed situations, the value of learner agency and autonomy in live mixed learning, and specific practical tips like when to use webcams during live online learning, making the invisible audible, and announcing silence. If you deliver live online learning as most learning businesses do, this episode is for you. Diana's experience, tips, and book can be great practical resources for you and your facilitators and instructors. Diana and Salisa spoke in October 2022. You're the author of Next Level Virtual Training, Advance Your Facilitation, and that came out in 2022, which seems like brilliant or serendipitous timing or perhaps both. Would you tell us a little bit about the origins of this book? When and why did you start work on it? You know, when the pandemic hit, of course, the whole world was suddenly thrown into virtual training. And I had lots of experience working in this field. So I first started doing what we called back then web conferencing. Back in 2000, I had seen a lot of platforms come and go. And I just knew that if I could just really share with the world, right, and help them um, be more equipped in this new virtual world. And so I started to really put down my ideas and I, I noticed that there were some things missing in the field. For example, a way for virtual facilitators to grow in professional development. Um, I had not seen a comprehensive chapter on how to be on camera. Usually there was maybe one or two pages and some of the existing works. And there really wasn't any dedicated uh, resource on this idea of hybrid learning, right? Where we have on-site and online learners together. And so 
I really thought because of those gaps in our industry, this would be a great time to really just um, write this book to really help people be more effective online. Well, I do think it's extremely helpful. And at the core of Next Level Virtual Training is a capability model. And so I have two questions I want to ask about that first, and this is a little bit of an aside, but I would love to get your comments on the difference between a, a competency model and a capability model. And then second, talk a little bit, if you would, about how you arrived at those eight key areas of, of expertise that are covered by the model. Sure. That's a great, great question. And I'm sure our listeners have different ideas too of capability versus competency. I remember working on the competency, uh, on a competency model 20 years ago. So those competency models have been around for a while. Um, the way that I like to look at it, Salisa, is I look at competence as sort of the destination. We have arrived at full competence levels. And I see capability more as the journey. So, you know, our goal is to be fully competent, but capabilities talk about kind of our growth as we try to get to that ultimate destination. So capabilities are kind of where we are right now. It's this blend of our knowledge and skills and they grow over time, right? So it helps us track that growth. And so that's why I really wanted to focus on capabilities, helping people be capable in these different areas. As you mentioned, the capability model for virtual facilitators has eight core areas of expertise. And when I started, Salisa, you know, to be honest, it was really challenging work, right? To think about what are the most important areas for virtual facilitators to know. And I started with 16. I based them on my own experience, research in the field, uh, observations, input from trusted colleagues in the industry, and eventually whittled those down and got them down to, I think, maybe 12 or so, and then landed on the eight. So just, it was very difficult work, lots of iterations, uh, very iterative, but really a nice trajectory, right? To help people on their development. Well, thank you for the distinction between competence and, and capability, that idea of destination versus journey. I think that's very helpful to think about. And then I love to hear that you started with more and then had to whittle it down to this yeah. aid. Do you happen to remember anything that ended up on the cutting room floor? Oh, well, quite a few, but I do remember the names changing a lot too. And at, at one point, you know, just lots of iterative work. At one point, I remember, I think we had troubleshooting agility and I just looked at that and I thought that seems a little awkward to say. And so <laughs> we changed it to agile troubleshooting. And so even the names, right, were, mm. were changing a lot. They didn't always have two words, but, you know, as you know, Salisa, usually the product of, of really um, repetitive work and hard work as you come out with something that's that's precise and you say, that's it. Wonderful. So I'm thinking about the impact of the pandemic and how that just pushed even laggards and kind of holdouts to online learning. And I think it seems fair and accurate to say at this point that the majority of people have experienced live online learning. But I'd be curious to hear your assessment of where are we in terms of not just delivering live online learning opportunities, but in designing and facilitating them to be effective? Are we at a tipping point? Are we past a tipping point? How would you describe it? 
You know, that's, I love that question. It's uh, very insightful. I think that we're probably at a place where everyone has obviously been introduced to these platforms, has had experience in these platforms, uh, has used the tools available to them. We're seeing more use of breakouts, for example. I think using the, you know, when we're we're doing live animation um, or annotation, sometimes people are still a little uh, fearful of using those kinds of tools. But where I think we're not yet at, Salisa, is really effective design and uh, really taking things to the next level, which is what I love about the book, Next Level Virtual Training, because we're challenging people not just to use the platform, right, but to do it in a very thoughtful way that's designing for being able to have outcomes and and change the way people um, after the learning, right, change the way they perform at work or even in their, their fields of work. And so there's so many things that that we can do to really leverage more of the tools and then also how we design the workout. So, you know, when we put more thoughtful design into if I want to have a really deep discussion, maybe I'm going to build in more reflection time. So more than just going through the motions, really being more thoughtful. And I know that when you think about designing live synchronous learning, that you're also thinking about ways to prepare learners for the live sessions and or to follow up with them after those sessions. So you're thinking about pre and post content. And so do you believe that single session learning can be effective or do you essentially always look to add pre or post content to live online sessions? Yeah, short answer is I have seen those single sessions be effective. Uh, So we have seen really good outcomes from those. But the research is so clear that when you have blended learning solutions, we have much better retention, much better application, right? So I do really try to always, and I hope our listeners do too, include some kind of prep work, right? So whether they're looking at a video before we come together online, I just taught a class this week on behavioral styles where we had videos for learners to watch beforehand. What I find is they come more prepared to class, right? To have a good discussion. And that was our experience when we were in the live on class this week. And then of course, post-work. So we have that spaced repetition over time, which only reinforces learning. So what I like to do sometimes is the one by one by one. So one day after they do something, maybe it's an assignment, one week after they do something, one month after. So these reinforcements of spreading out our learning and using the live synchronous class as part of that blended solution creates much more effective learning long-term. Wonderful. I, I think that idea of both the spacing and the reinforcement so much research just tells us how powerful that is if we really want to help learners take the knowledge and skills that we're giving them and and really apply them and and use them in their life and work. So it it makes a ton of sense to me to think about that when you're thinking about the big picture design of live online learning. Exactly. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. 
We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. You mentioned hybrid learning earlier and, you know, for hybrid, you know, this is where some learners are engaging in person, some learners are engaging uh, online. And that seems fairly tricky, right? That you have to nail kind of not just one, but two delivery methods and you have to get them right at the same time. So I would just love for you to share your thoughts on the pros and cons of hybrid approaches to learning. Yeah, so I like to really think about hybrid learning as live mixed. I feel like the term hybrid has been overused, right? We have hybrid cars, we have hybrid systems. Some people think of blended learning like we just discussed, Elisa, as hybrid. So it's been around a lot and it can be confusing. So to me, it warranted a fresh new term. And when you look at the context of that learning ecosystem, you see uh, this mix, right, of on-site and online learners together, and it is live. It's happening in real time. So that's why I call it live mixed. But as you suggest, Elisa, there are certainly many inherent challenges because we have sort of doubled the technology. We can have multiple live situations, you know, going on at the same time. And higher education has really been a leader in this field, right? They've been doing this for a while. And you have the facilitator, of course, who is taxed with uh, so many things to manage at once that the cognitive load for the facilitators is very high. And often our facilitators will say, you know, I'm so exhausted at the end of that um, when they're managing it. But I would say the good news, Salisa, is there are certainly ways that we can have effective live mixed learning. And I'm here to tell you that I certainly have seen that and have conducted that myself, but it requires strategies, right? So one strategy, for example, and I do talk about this in my book as well, I have a whole chapter dedicated to live mixed learning. But one strategy is because there's so many things to manage at the same time, right? Is really partnering, partnering with a co-facilitator. So one of the, you is the lead. It could be the virtual facilitator is the lead or the on-site facilitator, but we have an anchor in each venue. This helps the learners as well, but there's two of you. And then I've even reached out to IT support. Sometimes I'll have IT in the room with me um, because if something goes wrong, you want it to be remedied right away. We're focused on the instruction and the facilitation. So it's nice to have that support. Or sometimes I'll have the tech support person just be there for kind of um, the opening pieces or until we finish our breakout. Uh, so there are ways to, to really manage that classroom and, and help it be effective. Well, I think that idea of co-facilitation makes a, a lot of sense. But again, that does then up the the need for preparation, right? You have to be able to coordinate with your co-facilitator if you're the one delivering that learning and, and just all of the prep that goes into doing that seems even more important than, than in if a, a sort of a single delivery mode uh, approach. Right, absolutely. And one thing that I like to do too is we allow learners choice, right? So this leverages learner agency and their autonomy. They choose how they're going to show up in this venue. So they can choose, I'm going to attend online, or they can choose to be there on site. And that also, right, adds their 
investment in the learning and helps quite a bit for them to be pleased, right? About them having some, some options. But what I've learned is that, you know, you want to make sure that they're committed. So, you know, we had a bunch of folks register that, oh, we're going to be there uh, uh, in person. And then they actually showed up online. So mm. I now I always say you can choose, but you have to commit <laughs> to the venue because then we plan appropriately. Usually those who choose to attend in person, they like that in-person energy. And so we leverage that and allow them to work together in um, in-person small groups, right, for discussion. And then we have the virtual, uh, those who are online, we have them work together in virtual breakouts. But then we bring everyone back and we do a debrief together. I usually alternate too. So I'll call on somebody virtually and then I call on somebody in person and then I call on somebody virtually and then in person. So, you know, really keeping it equitable as well. Mm. I'm so glad you added those uh, added details and in particular referencing learner agency by giving them the choice that that is a real pro of, of a live mixed option. Yes. So I am curious to get your thoughts on the use of video cameras during live online sessions and, and want to know what guidance you have, you know, seeing a video feed of a facilitator seems to me that it can have this humanizing, personalizing touch but it could also be a, a distraction and maybe even contribute to cognitive overload for learners. So what are your thoughts on when and why to use cameras? You know, it's a really important question. And in my book, I talk about this too, about how using the camera, I recommend it be used for purposeful connection moments. So we optimize our use of, of the webcam because there are many benefits. We can talk a little bit about that. The research studies are showing it's not so much that webs, webcams being on or off make a difference in learning outcomes. That seems to be sort of a wash. But where we are seeing benefits, a Stanford study done in 2015 found that learners said that they felt an increased sense of social presence, which is so important to feel that right from the facilitator, as well as an improved experience. So even though cameras being on may not necessarily improve learning outcomes, it is making a difference in their experience, which is so important, and their perception right of this facilitator's presence. So when we ask the question, should we use cameras? Yes, because those are really good benefits. And then of course, Florida State University did a webcam study in 2021 and found too that there was this increased sense of closeness and that people listened better. So the, the point here though, is that we don't need the cameras on all the time, right? So using them for purposeful connection moments. So when you have an introduction, when somebody's doing a role play, a teach back, when you're doing a large group discussion, I usually stop showing visuals, bring everybody on camera, encourage them to be camera ready, by the way, before the event. We have our discussion with our faces on camera there. Or sometimes when we do a closing or if I'm telling a story that supports what we're learning, like those are times, right, where we want to see each other. But you bring up a great point, Salisa, about cognitive overload. Is it too much? So certainly when I'm showing a complex diagram, for example, we want to direct focus. If we have a camera on a facilitator or even the other learners, those are competing visuals, right? So that would be an example of 
extraneous cognitive load, which we want to uh, reduce if we can. So what we do is I'll tell people out loud verbally, I'm going to go off camera and let's focus on this complicated diagram, right? And that's where we want our focus to be. So really being thoughtful about how we instruct and learn and then leveraging the camera when it's most optimal. Well, that's great advice. I like this idea of purposeful connection moments and being aware of when those are and knowing that that can be a good time for use of the the cameras. And it's also very helpful to have the research that you shared in terms of the fact that the use of cameras or the non-use of cameras doesn't appear to impact learning outcomes, but that it does have these other benefits that can come along with it. So that's all wonderful. And so we've touched on a few pieces of, of advice and points of consideration, but you know, just given your depth and breadth of experience, I just would love to get from you an, another tip or another piece of advice that you would offer virtual listeners who are really looking to improve their virtual facilitation. Oh, yes. Uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about. <laughs> so, you know, you, we can go through the motions, right, and facilitate on a platform virtually with remote learners. But I always try to challenge and push people to be more excellent, right? And how can we do that? So some tips are, uh, I talk about this in my book as well, but I have a strategy called Make the Invisible Audible, Make the invisible audible by talking your task. What I mean by that is when we're in person and facilitator is sort of getting their slides ready and needs to switch to a different monitor, we don't need to make any commentary about what we're doing because learners can see in person what is happening in the room. So what happens virtually is we're not used to explaining what I'm doing. Let's say there's a long pause or uh, something just happened. I lost my chat and I'm trying to find it. So instead of this awkward pause where learners can feel like, oh, did they lose my connection or did, did I get disconnected? I have facilitators talk their task. Oh, one moment, I just need to bring up my other PowerPoint here. Or, oh, I just need to go bring back the chat. I see that there. Like you make the invisible audible. So that's one of the principles um, that I like to encourage everyone to do. And then to play off this idea of when there is silence, you know, as you know, Salisa in the learning field and our listeners know, it's so important to have those spaces, those times where we can process and reflect. And sometimes occupational hazard for those of us, right, in, in, um, in education, sometimes we just keep talking. And so really important to have those spaces. But again, in a virtual facilitation environment, uh, if we have these long pauses, learners can feel like there's something wrong with the audio or they got disconnected. So I call it announced silence, which just means we let learners know I'm going to be quiet for a little bit and here's why. And so, for example, let's say that I was showing a complex diagram and I wanted them to digest it first before we broke it down and unpacked it. I might say something like, I'm going to be quiet for a few minutes here and I'd like you to 
to look at this diagram. And when I come back, we're going to talk about what are the parts of it. So they understand why we're quiet. I feel like that can be very useful for learning. I love those two tips, the way that you paired them up there, because in the case of the make the invisible audible, it's sort of about saying more than you might usually. And then in the announced silence, it's about saying less, but just being being clear (laughs) about why you're saying less and letting, in both cases, it's about letting the learners know why you're doing something or why something's happening. So we always love to ask folks who come on the Leading Learning Podcast about their own lifelong learning. And so how do you approach your own lifelong learning? Do you have specific habits or practices or sources that you like to use in order to continue to grow professionally and and personally? Yeah. You know, I feel like that's so important. We invest in others and we're always helping others learn and grow. And so I feel like we have to do the same (laughs) for ourselves. uh, Right. And so for me, Salisa conferences have been a great source of inspiration. You see what's happening in the field. You see where we're going in the future. Uh, You get glimpses, right. Of what's coming around the, around the bend. Uh, So I've been able to fortunate to be able to attend virtual conferences, obviously during the pandemic, and then back in the swing of it, attending in person as well. And so those are just, I think, great places to be inspired and challenged and pushed beyond. We sometimes get in our comfort zones, right? And then the other thing I like to do is look at resources. So I do have favorite, you know, some favorite books, or I'm looking at those resources too, to think how I can improve myself. And then just a personal philosophy is I always feel like it's helpful to understand the learner's perspective and that informs what we do as educators and facilitators. So, you know, back when I was doing a lot of public speaking, I used to go to the back of the auditorium in the physical room and sit in the back row before the event. And I just envisioned what it would be like for a person in the audience to see that perspective when, you know, I was on stage speaking, let's say. And then when I'm on stage speaking, I remember what it was like to be in that back row and look forward. So you almost see two perspectives at once, which takes some training to do, but it can be done. And so I feel the same way about virtual facilitation. I attend virtual classes as a learner. I go into a breakout as a learner in different situations to help my own virtual facilitation be better, right? So you really walk in the shoes of the learner and you'll observe all sorts of things that then help you be more effective when you yourself are facilitating them. Thank you for sharing that. And I love that idea of putting yourself in the learner's perspective, literally. Diana Howells is CEO of Howells Associates and author of Next Level Virtual Training, Advance Your Facilitation. In the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 334, you'll find the visual of the virtual trainer capability model that Diana discussed. You'll also find links to her book, the Howells Associates website, and Diana's profiles on LinkedIn and Twitter. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 334, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we would be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as those subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. 
Solis and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 334, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.